Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you again this evening to open your word, to look into it, knowing that we can understand nothing of it aside from your spirit opening our eyes to understand the truth therein. And Lord, we just pray that you would again meet us tonight, allow that to happen again. I particularly ask that you would be with me, give me the words to speak, help me to speak with clarity. I'm keenly aware of my limitations and difficulties and how vast and immense is this word. So I pray by your grace that you would give me the strength to say what you would have to say and that the end result, of course, would be to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that not only here, but also in Texas as our pastor is traveling and teaching, that your spirit would meet them there and your word would also be proclaimed with boldness and truth there as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My topic for tonight is the subject of humility, particularly the humility of Christ And our text for tonight is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. God's ways are not the ways of men. As he says in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And as we examine the text tonight, we're going to see that that is in fact true. God's ways and His way of going about things are much different than the human mind or our flesh would conceive of. According to men, honor is obtained by self-promotion and by besting one another in competition. In fact, we have award shows that we have annually for individuals in their various fields that do just that. They establish themselves over their competition, and we therefore award them for that. And usually there's lots of self-promotion, self-flaunting, and aggrandizement that goes along with these award shows. Andrew Murray, in his book Humility, says of the topic of humility... That, quote, humility is the only ladder to honor in God's kingdom. Humility is the only ladder to honor in God's kingdom. And he's quite right because that's a very biblically accurate statement. For We read in Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This sounds like one of those contradictory, paradoxical statements that don't seem to make sense to the human mind, to our flesh. But it says the same thing in Proverbs, and so does Ezekiel, so does Luke, James, and Peter. And that's one of the indications that God's ways are higher than our ways, because that idea of something abasing itself or humbling itself in order to be exalted sounds very confusing and contradictory to us. But it demonstrates how the logic of God is far superior to the logic of men in every way. So our object for tonight is to examine that, particularly in the case of Christ's demonstration 
of his humility that is laid out in chapter 2 of Philippians. Typically, when I've been asked to speak before, I usually like to define terms uh, on the subject that I'm going to speak of that evening. And I was endeavoring to do that today, and I was thinking of, well, how do I define humility from the, from the onset so we have some working ground to work off of? As I did that, I, I felt, well, this could be a good way to say it, that could be a good way to say it. And the more I got into the text, the more I started to realize, you know, what's laid out here, what Paul lays out here in the example of Christ is far superior to any definition I could think of and then impose upon the text. So I'm not going to give a definition for humility, but I'm hoping that the whole message as a whole tonight will give you a working definition in the example of what Christ accomplished, and particularly one aspect of a, of a verse that we're going to look at, and I'll pinpoint that when we get there, and I think you'll see that it is a wonderful picture and a wonderful definition of what humility is. So let's look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 tonight. And this is in context of Paul writing to the church, and this first section here is his hope, his call for the church of unity of mind, uh, of unity of spirit, one purpose, things done without selfishness, and then he uses Christ's example as the illustration for that. So we need to keep in mind as we look into the nuts and bolts of Christ's example that this is within the context of a call to us as individuals, as part of the body of Christ, to be humble and united in one mind as well. So chapter 2, verse 1 reads, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A mind of humility ought to be the distinguishing hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. As Paul just said, united in one purpose. And we do nothing of selfishness, but out of humility of mind. In researching this topic, I came across a quote from Augustine, who said a quote regarding humility that I very much like. He said, As the orator, when asked what is the first precept of eloquence, answered delivery. What is the second? Delivery. What is the third? Delivery. So, if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. And I think that's quite right. Because if we think about all that we do as Christians, all that we're called to do, humility is the main foundational attitude that we have to have in all of those things. Can we worship without humility? Can we be obedient without humility? 
Can we approach and study the Word of God without humility? What about prayer? Can we pray without humility? Can we fellowship and serve within the body without humility? Can we witness to others without humility? Can we encourage each other without humility? And can we exemplify Christ Jesus without humility? That's what we want to look at tonight. The example of the humility of Christ. So Paul continues in verse 5, and he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. And then he's going to give us the example, the nuts and bolts of Christian humility as exemplified by Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Interesting, if we're going to properly understand Christ's humility, then it's extremely important that we understand who he really and rightfully is. And Paul lays out this wonderful picture of Christ's humility. He does first and foremost with a clear didactic statement of who Christ is. Christ existed in the form of God. And the word form there used here in the Greek is the word morphe. And it does not mean a lesser representation of or a part of, but rather an outward expression, a one-for-one copy of, the very shape of. So that Paul is being clear in saying that Jesus Christ existed in the very exact representation, the essence of God himself, because he is God. Paul establishes this point. In order for us to properly understand the humility of Christ, we must properly understand his deity. God is, he is God, a very God. And we know from John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As he told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And we know the Pharisees wanted to kill him for it, so they understood what he was saying. They knew that he was equating himself with God. So why is it so important for Paul to establish this point from the onset, who Christ is, when he is trying to make this larger point of humility that we're to emulate? Why is it so important for him to to establish that fact? Because in order to understand how Christ humbled himself and demonstrated humility for us, we have to understand the degree of his humility. And in order to do that... We have to understand that we need to first understand the height from which he came. If a man humbles himself, a man has nothing to boast of. He doesn't know where he came from, how he got to the point that he is, why he's there. So his natural default state ought to be a humble person. Of course, we know that's not the case. But if Jesus, who is God and created all things, and apart from him was nothing that was created that was created, not anything, not at all, then any humility from that level, even in the slightest degree, would be an amazing expression of humility. Because he is at the highest pinnacle, the highest status. And that's why Paul deems it so important to establish from the the onset that Jesus is God, and it is from that point from which he humbled himself. 
not from any lower degree. What an amazing expression of humility. So when we understand and discuss Christ's humility, it is essential that we do recognize his deity when we discuss it in order that he receives the proper glory. And I did want to look at a couple of verses here, a couple of passages that just reiterate to us the rightful status of Christ's glory, the rightful status of who he is. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He is the radiance of his glory and the express representation of the nature of God, upholding all things by his power. That is a lofty depiction of the glory that Christ has. And I had a couple other passages I just wanted to look at. In Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied of his birth, he says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those are a lot of superlatives that accurately describe our Savior. Wonderful, full of wonder. It's not just a a term we throw out so flippantly now that, oh, that's wonderful. No, He is literally full of wonder. Our Counselor, He's the intercessor for us. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, without end. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and the Prince of Peace. Without Him, there is no peace. And John, in Revelation, in describing Christ as his, at His return, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written on Him which no man knows except Himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Eyes as a flame of fire. That sounds pretty glorious. Just trying to imagine that, depicting that. I I don't know what that would look like, but anything that has eyes as, as a flame of fire. And many crowns on his head. That's a wonderful picture of something quite glorious, and we know that is an accurate description of who Jesus is. And of course, there's many other scriptures we could go to that give us an accurate representation and understanding of the glory that Christ has and rightly deserves that honor. We won't look at all of those tonight. But as we continue in our text here in Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourself which was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, 
and now he's going to continue, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I know this is a often debated, somewhat controversial portion of Scripture. And I don't want to really get into all that for fear of kind of missing the forest for the trees. But I do want to touch on this. It, it was, he did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched onto. He did not regard his rightful status, his rightful glory, as something to be continually possessed. He was willing to set that aside Though it was his rightful claim, he's God. He deserved that rightful glory from all his creation. And notice the word that he uses the word regard here. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's the same word that he used in verse 3 when he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. In verse 6, Paul is describing exactly the perfect representation of what he laid out as a hope for us in verse 3. Here, fulfilled perfectly in Christ. In verse 3, Paul says, Regard or esteem or consider others more important than yourselves. And in verse 6, Jesus regards others over his rightful glory. For the sake of his bride, he does not regard equality with God a thing to be clutched, a thing to be grasped. That is a true picture of humility. But not only does he not regard that as something to be clutched, he continues, but he emptied himself. And this is the part where in my study when I thought that's the definition of humility, the emptying of self. I don't think I can come up with a better Definition than that. The King James renders it, made himself of no reputation. That's humility right there. I can't define it any better than that. And in emptying himself and setting aside this represent, representation, or he did not cease to be God, where he was still God, but he emptied himself of the glory of his rightful honor, as we know in his high priestly prayer, prayer when he prayed to the Father to restore the glory back to Him, that was the glory that He set aside in order to fulfill the incarnation and to come to earth and to redeem His bride. So what a wonderful depiction of humility, the emptying of self, the, the opposite of of a sense of entitlement. Really, that's what it is. The opposite of a sense of entitlement. He did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, but he doesn't stop there. He continues. You kind of see the chain of digression coming down. But he did not um, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. That seems incredible in light of the passages that we read earlier that talk about all his glory, all his radiance, the exact representation of God. He humbled himself to the form of a bondservant. 
So he did not empty himself of his Godhead, but he emptied himself of his, of his glory to become a bondservant, the exact representation of the bondservant. Actually, it's the, the same word that he uses here, form of a bondservant, uh, that he used earlier in verse uh, 6 when he said, in the form of God. It's, it's that Greek word morphe. So if you're going to come to the text and deny the deity of Christ while affirming that he was indeed a servant, or vice versa, if you're going to say that, yes, he's God, but he wasn't a servant, you're going to be grammatically inconsistent because it's the same word here. He is God, a very God. He existed in that form, and he was servant, a very servant. He was the bond servant, the suffering servant. Is my Greek correct there? Does that, that match? Okay, I just wanted to... Check with you and see for sure. Jesus was the suffering servant. And as he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He's the suffering servant predicted by Isaiah. He is both God and he served to the extent of washing feet for sinful men, washing the feet of the disciples. What an expression of servanthood in that expression to the disciples of washing the feet of another individual while being God. And not only that, he's also subservient to the Father. Uh, Listen to the words Jesus uses in John to describe the relationship between he and the Father and how often he uses words like not and nothing of himself. The Son can do nothing of Himself, John five nineteen. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which sent me, John five thirty. For I come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me, that's John six thirty eight. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. That's John 7, 16. I am not come of myself, John 7, 28. I do nothing of myself, John 8, 29, or 28. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me, John 8, 42. I seek not mine own glory, John 8, 50. The word that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. John 14.10, the word which you hear is not mine. John 14.24. So we see how Jesus was subservient to the Father in his incarnation as well. And he tasted the wrath of God while being subservient to the Father and serving us at the same time in tasting that wrath for us. So he served the bride and the father in the same exact time. And he continues to serve us by interceding for us at the right hand of God, as Paul tells us in Romans. What a marvelous picture of Christ serving the father and his bride. So Paul continues to lay this out here in uh, chapter 2, so he's just told us that 
Christ existed as God and in the form of a bondservant as well. And then he continues to expand on that. And he says, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. So he was fully man as well. God became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as a man. John tells us that. Romans tells us that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yet we know without sin, being fully man, he was tempted. He was hungry. He was tired. He suffered in pain. His incarnate appearance, according to Isaiah, was without beauty and without majesty. So as one would not look upon him with desire. So contrast that with all the wonderful descriptions of his appearance that we read in Revelation, in Hebrews, to that lowly state of not desirable to look upon. And then we know in his crucifixion, he was marred and beaten to beyond what is recognizable by mankind. So much so that when they looked upon him, they were astonished. That's a, as low as I think you can get from your state with God being honored to a servant who was beaten, marred, spit upon, so that those who looked at him were astonished. I can't even imagine that. I can't imagine it. But he did it, and that is an indescribable act of humility. It's indescribable. He humbled himself. Paul continues here in chapter 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, point, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that humility was all the way to the point of death. His humiliation to the point of death, willingly, not forced by men, but willingly he laid down his own life. His obedience, his submission was to such a degree that he did not balk, uh, but was obedient to the point of death and tasted the wrath of God. We can't even imagine that. He tasted it for us. And Paul adds the modifier that even the death of the cross, which is an important addition, uh, it's easy for someone to know when they, it's their time to die to take a coward's way out and take a cyanide capsule or something like that. We, we hear stories about that throughout history. But Christ, in his humanity, knowing what pain was because he suffered it, was still obedient to the point of death on a cross, which was the most cruel, excruciating, prolonged torture that was available at his time. And we think about him on the cross, hanging there to where just in order to breathe, you had to lift yourself up so that you could fill your lungs with oxygen. But in order to do that, you had to push against those nail-scarred wounds in order to get up to breathe over and over and over again. It had to be incredibly excruciating, and that doesn't even factor in all the beatings before that, the scourging, um, the beard plucked out, all of those things. So hopefully that gives us some sense of awe 
at the humility of Christ. What a depiction it is. What an example we're called to emulate. This is the same mind that, that Christ demonstrated that Paul is saying, have this mind in you. How can we possibly emulate that? It's impossible. We can never match the humility of Christ ever. We can't do it. Our humility is mostly fake humility. We pretend to be humble in order to look good in front of individuals in order to gain some credit or feel better about ourselves. It's not, and that actually isn't really humility. That's just pride disguising itself as humility. But yet, we convince ourselves that it is. And I'm just thinking of, over the weekend, I took my brother to the airport at 4 a.m. in the morning, and I was thinking, you know, this is pretty good. I, right, yeah, I was like, yeah, this is a, I'm sacrificing here. This is a good one, right? But did I do it while I was being spit upon and, and to someone that, that hated me, that wanted nothing to do with me and was cursing me? No, I did it for someone that I liked, that I wanted to do. And there's no cost on my end. There was no great price. But with Christ, we can see that cost laid out here. And it's astounding to try to estimate or understand the degree in which he came to pay the price that he did. Christ sacrificed while he was being spit upon, while he was mocked, while he was rejected. That, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that. We, if somebody treats us like that, our flesh flares up and we say, I can't be treated like that. You don't know me. I'm not going to stand for that. And we go the other way. But Christ humbled himself. Like the love of Christ, like the holiness and all his other attributes, his humility is beyond our understanding. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The humility of Christ had direction and a specific purpose and intent as well. An intent to self-sacrifice for the freedom of those who belong to him. It wasn't just often as ours is, humility for self-promotion. It was for a specific intent to accomplish. And the humility of Jesus was the means by which the cross was accomplished. Men laugh, mock, and, and ridicule humility as a weakness. But yet Jesus demonstrated with his humility more accomplishment and more effective power in that humility than any man in history who ever accomplished anything. And that just shows that God's ways are higher than men's ways. God accomplishes with humility. Man thinks that it accomplishes with pride and arrogance. And so what is the sum of this? What, is the, what does all this lead to? Paul concludes here, he says, for this reason, for the whole reason that he just laid out, for all of that, for this reason, for this purpose, or on this account, this matchless demonstration of humility, for, humility, for that reason, God has highly exalted him, highly exalted him. 
Remember he said, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And whoever humbles himself to this degree must be highly exalted. How highly? So highly that he says here, that bestowed upon him is a name above all names. A name above all names. A name by which there is no higher authority. And when he says name above all names, he's saying authority above all authority. As we pray in Jesus' name, we pray in the authority that is behind that name. And he is saying here that there is a name that has authority above all other authority. And he has been given that because of the humility that he carried out in his incarnation. What is the demonstrating proof of the authority of Jesus Christ? He tells us that. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow without exception. Every knee will bend and recognize the supreme unchallenged power of the Lamb of God. Every. He, he goes on to say, those of all those who are in heaven and on earth... And under the earth, he lists every category in every location because there is no location where the Lamb does not have complete authority because every knee is going to recognize it and bow, recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Kyrios. And he says they will not only bow the knee, but they will also confess with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of Lords, possessor of this authority. They will recognize and confess this. It's interesting. We live in a very politically charged world and with social media and everything, lots of opinions being thrown this way and that. And every time we hear this banter, there's usually a voice. Somebody says, you know, if only we could set aside our differences and our opinions and, and we could come together in common interest, things would be so much better. Well, according to this verse, the only time the whole of humanity becomes collectively together is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. They all share the same opinion. They all recognize his authority that's the only time they will have the same exact uh, acknowledgement and whether i guess it's not i said i called it an opinion but i suppose it's more of a recognition and statement of fact than it is a an opinion but it will be to the point where it's undeniable when his power is fully revealed everyone will recognize and acknowledge that he is Lord. And what is the result of that, Paul says? And this, to the glory of God the Father, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God indeed. That's always the end result, the glory of God. And it's demonstrated here quite perfectly in the humility of Christ. That's, that's the summary of Every sermon, that's the summary of this book. That's the summary of creation, that God is glorified. And he will be glorified in the finished work of his son. And he is glorified 
in this demonstration of humility that Christ laid out for us. And it's intimidating to think about that being put in the context of what we are to emulate. Because, as I said earlier, certainly we cannot copy that. But I'm certainly thankful that he did, that he expressed that incalculable expression of his humility. I wanted to read a, uh, a verse here in closing that sums up what he has done for us and with this demonstration. And this is uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I don't know of a better way to demonstrate humility than that. So my hope is that when we talk about humility within the church, we always do so and recognize it from its ultimate demonstration in Christ, not as something that we get credit for or that we praise when we see it, we recognize that is a reflection of Christ and we give him the glory rather than the individual. All right. Any questions or thoughts on humility in general or in the context of Philippians 2 here? I was just thinking that this passage has been argued and parsed and fought over by church councils and Mm -hmm. theologians and all kinds of books, it has been discussed in such detail. Yes. And yet, when you're digging into the theology of the kenosis, and you know, you're making all of your arguments, it's it's so easy to forget the reason Paul gave yes. us what he did. It wasn't so we could write theology books. It was yeah. so that we could be humble. Right. Yeah, I caught myself a couple times trying to avoid that, going into you know, some of those parts where it talks about the grasping and some of the different opinions and perspectives on that that you read in different commentaries. I didn't want to get lost in the, you know, the muddying the waters because of that, but understand fully what he's saying in context. So, you did that very well. Well... I just tried to just read what he said. Humble. What's that? Just keeping you humble. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Any prayer requests? Or... All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you came down to men from your lofty estate that you so rightly deserve. And we can't understand why you would come to men, but you've done it, and we know that it certainly redounds to your glory. You will be glorified throughout eternity for what you have done. And though we are attempting to try to understand the humility that you demonstrated at the cross, we can't quite grasp it, Lord, but just our struggle to grasp it is marvelous in when we try to do so, Lord. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for being the God that you are and not leaving us, not forsaking us, 
but coming to meet us and pulling us from a, a world of not knowing you, not wanting to be with you, and not even know that, knowing that we were lost in our own sins, but making us alive, making us aware of our sin, and planting in us a new heart, a heart that desires to seek you. And we just pray, Lord, that what we do is pleasing in your sight. Thank you so much for this church. Thank you for your word. And may what we do and say be pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.